so uh, we are joined by the modern day Renaissance man, Andy Summers. <laughs> you yeah. know, Rand- Andy, I, I, I call Rude. you the modern day Rena- Renaissance man, but I mean, you're a musician, obviously. You're a filmmaker. Well, you're an author. You're a renowned photographer. Yeah. You've written books before, but never before in fiction. Not quite as obviously as this, no. I've written many tales, but yeah, this is what we're promoting. is definitely a collection of fiction, short stories. <laughs> Are uh, they really fiction, though? Yeah, that's what's Sorry? It seems like there's some... Are they really no, fiction? No, 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 no. I mean, you, you're making a salient point, a probing point there. <laughs> well, I have passed through the life, still passing through it, as you may know. So uh, there's a lot in the store up here. So I don't have to, you know... It's not like somebody who was um, specializing in sheep farming suddenly having, having to uh, turn to the guitar and write stories about it. So I was able to pick up on little things in my own life that I've passed through, anecdotes, stories, situations, blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, get into the process of writing them into something that's reasonable and can be entertaining on the page. That's the work. I think, Andy, what's so impressive about these stories is, and the reason we believe there has to be some truth to them is they're so detailed. I mean, you don't well, typically get that with, with stories that aren't true. Yeah. Yeah, well, you know, it's an interesting point because, um, you know, as a normal viewing person, listening, viewing person, when anybody, anybody who doesn't, who's not really a musician, t- writes about music, it never comes off very well. You know, where they try to write a screenplay or it's a TV series or whatever it is. As a musician, one tends to uh, view or listen with some skepticism on the other hand, here I am, I seem to be able to write okay, and uh, but I have actually had the real experience. So I think maybe these stories maybe have a touch of authenticity that some other people may not get. And you didn't course, have to change any of the names on in some of these characters? Ooh, Proby, Proby. Uh, no, I haven't changed <laughs> any names. Andy, it's, it's, it's what we do. And of course, oh, uh, we, really? are, we are talking about your uh, book called Fretted and Moaning. It's a book of short stories. Yeah. Uh, and it's what's really clever about this is every story has some sort of twist or some sort of open-ended yeah. ending. Yes. Um, tell me how your thought yeah. process was. Well, I, I, I thank you for that because yeah, these are for, mostly they're sort of dark comedy, you know, to you know broadly generalize about what they are. That that's my. I'm a European. I'm a, I'm a Brit. So you know the Brits are you know notorious for the sense of irony. So that's the kind of thing I like. And, you know, I like open endings where, you know, all the possibilities are still there versus the Hollywood ending, you know, which you got beginning, middle, end, and they tie up all the knots. This is Spielberg. Um, yeah. Which is very difficult for me, you know, because I don't think life is like that. I grew up on European art house films. So I like these endings that are, they don't always have to be tragic, but, you know, there's, they're pregnant with possibility, not closed down and that's it you've got all the things so that is definitely where it's coming from they they do definitely leave you hanging sometimes these stories yeah i and, mean maybe um, i i should have done more that someone said oh they're all a bit dark at the end you know people get killed you know the things happen that aren't terribly pleasant but um i think it's genius really because like when you leave it so open-ended like that yeah. it gives room for the one who's reading to sort of trying to yeah. Um, imagine what could happen or, right. or where it might go. And that's kind of how life is anyway. Well, exactly. And that's the problem with the, the Hollywood endings that life's not like that. It's always a mess at the end. You know? Exactly. Yeah. No, you know, unresolved, but 
life goes on, yeah. They certainly yeah. leave you uh, thinking. You know, we, we, Ben and I have this Beatles podcast where we talk to uh -huh. established musicians and we bring it back to the Beatles conversation. In reading your book, there are many references to the Beatles. I mean, you even have a story titled Come Together. Maybe not mm -hmm. in the same sense referring to the Beatles Come Together, a little more vague there. Um, but uh -huh. uh, talk about how the Beatles had maybe perhaps an influence in your uh, insight into this book. Well, I would say, in all honesty, that it would be a rare musician in the modern world that, that wasn't, you know, touched by the Beatles. You know, they may not have wanted to go down the whole Beatles path, but everyone was affected by it in some way or another. I mean, it was a kind of a, a magical time when the Beatles emerged with the talent and, you know, they met the right producer and things were very open at that that particular point in time in the 60s where, you know, they were able to do this. Also, they were gifted songwriters. Uh, there's no question. It was one of the great songwriting partnerships and, and it all came together. Uh, and it was very powerful. I think it certainly changed the uh, course of pop music. I was in London at the time. Suddenly everybody wanted to be sort of like the Beatles. Not everybody, but because um, then you, on the other hand, you had the Stones who were the sort of opposite of the Beatles. But the idea of, um, writing your own songs definitely took hold at that point and everybody was very influenced by that so yeah, so when you, you first you got uh, sergeant peppers yeah and and, and uh, magical mystery tour and heard songs like strawberry fields forever i mean what was that like back then hearing music like that that you know hadn't really like I, I, even right now, I can't even imagine a song that sounds like Strawberry Fields Forever, yeah. even now. Well, there was, I mean, there so was a different. few they did, yeah, because I, I personally like the sort of more psychedelic ones, you know, um, like Tomorrow Never Knows, um, Benefit of Mr. Kite, those kind of things. I like Revolver very much. But um, I'll just tell you a little story, uh, because this will amuse you, and it's very much to do with the Beatles. Uh, back at that period, I was in a group called Zoot Money's Big Roll Band. It was the first band I was ever in. Started it with a mate, Zoot Money, from my hometown in England. Anyway, we were recording for EMI at Pi Studios in London. So, well, how much can one say here publicly? I'm <laughs> Andy, say it all. It's all it's all out in the open now. No one gives your guts, mate. monkeys anymore. Anyway, yeah. Uh, <laughs> it got spilled a long time. That's why I'm the hollow man. Um, <laughs> We had a session booked at like 2 p.m. at Pi Studios. Zoot and I were out on acid all night long. It was like a major acid trip, you know, the whole shamir, as one did in those days. Recovered. <laughs> Turned up at the studio about an hour late. The rest of the band were um, hanging around waiting for us to turn up and get it all going. So we turned up in the studio and somewhere, you know, it was all a bit of a shambles because we weren't really that together, you know. And this guy said, we stopped and the guy, one of the locals in the studio said, hey, come here, I want, to, I want to play you something. I want to play you something that you, you've never heard. No one, no one's heard it. And he took us down the corridor, he says, come in here and listen to this. And uh, he walked us into the studio, he said, they were in here a couple of days ago, listen to this. He switched on the tape recorder and it was, uh, she's leaving home. And it was the Beatles, no one had heard it. It was the first time we were like, oh my God, you know. Wow. So it was, a, it was a, a special little moment and we were in the middle of recording some sort of pretty out, outside piece of R&B music. It was kind of weird after hearing She's Leaving Home to go back and ooh, can you carry on after that? Yeah. So She's Leaving Home is almost sort of old school, sort of harking back into the past 
McCartney sort of, you know, drawing. Yeah, it was. It was a little bit, but it was so perfectly and so sweetly done. And, you know, told a great story. Mm. It made uh, Brian Wilson cry. Yeah. Yeah. More like Brian Wilson in a way. And of course, both of those bands influenced each other. You know, I I think they were sort of in competition, one listening to the other. And then then Brian Wilson trying to up the ante with, um, what's the great one? Um, That sounds. Yeah, pet sounds. Yeah, smile. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, I know them all. Yeah, I know all. He was a genius in his own way too. You, yeah. you mentioned in your uh, in your book, you talked about uh, George Martin. At what point in your career did you develop a relationship with him? Well, I can tell you another rather funny story because it does relate to the Beatles. Um, and I, I put this in my book, One Train Later. Pretty amusing. Please, and I don't know whether it was uh, Synchronicity or Ghost in the Machine. We were on the, in the studio in the Caribbean, as one is, you know, of course, back in those days, at Air Studios. We were recording, and things were getting kind of tense, all to mo- all, you know, to, almost to the point of breakup, in the studio while we were playing, and it was getting, like, really tough. And we all said, well, we need a producer. We need a producer. <laughs> George Martin happened to be in, on the island, across the little valley in his house. It's called Alderson House from the studio. I said, well, let's go and get George Martin. You know, we had enough might and profile at that point to probably get him to come and produce us. I got the job of going over to Sir George's house. So I set off after lunchtime, you know, beating Caribbean sun, walking across the valley, slowly you know, trudging down, noting all the plants, flowers, <laughs> birds, Caribbean flora and fauna, climbed up this the sounds hill. like one of your short stories in your book well it is yeah, a bit. you read it in the book you'll see and you know i finally got to his house and knocked on the door and of course he had a caribbean maid she's going yes mister what do you want you know i, I speak to mr mr martin she's, and he walks out and oh come on in come on in come on in very nice man and um so we sat down and had a cup of tea i told him that we were having a really difficult time of it thinking he'd be totally interested in you know coming over and jumping <laughs> in with this mighty hit band but uh he basically gave me a sort of soothing talk and told me go on back i think you're all going to sort it out so i did i trudged all the way back across the valley back into the (laughs) studio into the control room with those other two people suddenly we were all extremely polite with one another we were very nice all manners were observed and it got very peaceful and we we carried on we didn't have any trouble after that we carried on and finished the album so he was like a sage that just blessed kind you of a sage it like will be person. okay you know yeah yeah it's like oh wow yeah i mean I, when i think of george martin i think of like the ultimate gentleman i never got to meet him like you but I can't think of anyone that would be as like gentlemanly as George, as Sir George Martin was. As well, you know, bands are notoriously argumentative and fighting. Same in the Beatles, same in the police. We're all, you know, yeah. and I'm a big believer in that. I think it's absolutely what you need. You need that sort of tension and out of that tension comes the music. So you need it. Um, we were pretty bad. And then that's just where like, the, the sort of grown up comes in, like Sir George, and <laughs> yeah, yeah, like like, the dad oh, comes in, out, you know, yeah. So, um, it was like a sort of act of divine grace. You know, I was going over and meeting him, and he sort of blessed us, good, good luck, boys. <laughs> it's gonna work out, of course. The record went straight to number one. Sorry, Andy, uh, w- w- you know, you talk about the tension within a band, yeah. I mean, when police reunited in what was it, 2008, around that seven and eight, seven and eight. 
Yeah. I, I mean, to this day, you're still one of the highest grossing touring acts from that one year. I mean, like, is it something yeah. like, is the tension so high you can't just get it together and go out and, and you know. No, believe it or not, um, you know, once it got really got up and running, you know, and we were really just doing the shows, you know, then it turned into, okay, you know, we don't have to, barely have to meet anymore. We just, we arrive at the stage and do the show and we, and it was great, you know. Uh, prior to that, you know, the rehearsals, which took place in Sting's house in Italy for a few weeks and also in Vancouver for some weird reason, that when we started in Vancouver, it was pretty tough at the beginning. I thought, you know, it's not going to work, but you know. Wow. So, it, it, like, it was, did you was, guys put more work into getting back those songs together no, and regrouping? It wasn't them? the musical work. Music's easy. That and fly right. fly logs, nothing to me. Uh, no, the, it's the interpersonal chemistry. You're going to be able to do this, you know. You know. Yeah. Particularly, yeah. you know, my rhythm section, fighting it out and working out what they were going to do. You know. But I remember Sting saying in that documentary that he was saying, "Well, we've left such a perfect legacy." when we uh, broke up initially, that if we stuff this up, we, we just can't, we're going to have to, you know, practice and practice and just nail this so that we don't stuff it up, up that perfect legacy. And I was thinking when I was watching it that, uh, like, you know, I was going to ask you, did you work harder getting those tracks perfect more than when you did when you actually initially but, made them in the studio? Yeah, you know, to me, it's very simple music. Not very challenging guitar-wise. I mean, I brought a certain level of something to it, which other people talk about. Not difficult for me. You know, none of us have stopped playing. I've been playing jazz for all the years in between. Much more <laughs> difficult, much yeah. more, you know, chopsy, difficult, you know, flying music. I mean, the, the police music, I mean, they're pop songs. Why was I going to ever have a problem with it? No, it's more between the bass and drums and like, you know, getting back that thing back together. But um, no. <laughs> that was amusing watching yeah, those guys go it was, at it. it. You know, it was, but I think that was just symbolic of the, you know, well, certain people having to come back and be in a band again that they may not want to have been in a band <laughs> again. But, you know, the minute we started, you couldn't turn back because, okay, you, you know the level that that was at. It was all stadiums. It was one of the, maybe the highest grossing tour of all time. There were 100 people on the payroll. There was insurance. There was shit mm. in place all the way down the line. There was no getting out of it. And so, you know, it's had this sort of turbulent beginning, but it slowly coalesced into the unit. You know, Therapy. three shows and we were off and running, you know. Nothing to think about. And, you know, personally, I wanted to go, you know, we were the best band of all time and we're going to bloody well prove it every night. <laughs> so, you know, it, yeah, we did 150 concerts and uh, I thought we were better than ever because we'd all been playing for longer, more, even more chops, if you like. And the technology was fantastic that by then, you know, so superior to what we'd had in the in the 80s. You know, and I really went, oh, my God, I wish it had been like this back then. You know, incredible <laughs> PA systems, super deluxe touring. You know, it was very, it was very, very nice. You know, that was does a total that, triumph. Does that tension, though, I mean, as you get older, does it resolve itself? I mean, could you guys get back together now? And, and, and would you have the same problems you had 15 years ago? Well, those two bastards would have to beg and I'd have to beat the shit out of them. <laughs> um, 
I think I could. What, what if you not. guys all did each other's solo work? You know, the best of your solo work, the best of Sting's, and just did it as the police or something like that. Yeah, you could. Yeah, there's all sorts of. No, I mean, people are always planning these things. It is. It's the big one. You know, that mm. was supposed to be it, but um, you know, people like business advisors, financial people. Of course, they know the real financial bomb is the band. I have no idea. I have. I have no. I can't give you a very satisfying answer to that. You know, these things just tend to happen or not happen yeah. on their own. Well, I they all happen yeah. on a whim. I, rem I remember yeah. I had to write about this last night. Back to the pre-tour uh, moment before we did the actual uh, re the reuniting tour. Um, I remember that year I was out here. Sting was out here. We met one night and had dinner, and it was all just me and him and our girlfriends. Had a nice evening. It was all great. Oh, yeah, yeah. It was pretty nice to hang out. And then, as it happened, I turned up in October in New York, and I had the one train later book out my autobiography. And I called. Sting was in New York. He had that loot record out. <laughs> it's just so oh, yeah. ironic. I called him. Up. I, he said, "What are you doing?" Tonight? I said, "Oh, I'm doing a reading down at Barnes and Noble down in you know downtown." He said, that's funny, because I'm going to give a, a loop performance at Barnes & Noble uptown, you know, in Lincoln Square or where it was. So we were both appearing at Barnes & Noble on the same night, you know, both doing these little performances. So, you know, we laughed about that. It was kind of weird. And then I saw him about a month later in November in London, and we went out and had dinner and all that. And then shortly thereafter, the word came, you know, we're going to put it back together. So it was kind of meant to be, really, at that time. Kind of. No, I mean, it was a thrilling tour because it, the size and the scale of it and the, the fact that it just every, you know, we were saying out 80,000 seats a night and more, you know, it was amazing, amazing, you know, yeah. once in a lifetime. It was a total win for everybody, including the promoters, Live Nation, of course, you know. Well, uh, I, had, I had seen, you know, I don't know if this is just a media answer. I mean, I get it. But it, it, it appears as if you guys get along just fine as human beings, but it, the clash is over the creative level. Yeah, it's a bit of both, actually. I mean, we're all different people. And, you know, we've because of the attendant fame and all the stuff that we went through, I think we've all sort of isolated into our own fields and all that. But Do you we're all connected because, you know, obviously the corny term is the police now as a brand. It's, it's an ongoing industry. And so, you know, things still keep coming out. There's more stuff coming all the time. And we all have to be in agreement about signing off on various contracts and all that. So that's the sort of horrible part of showbiz. But there it is. We, we are all actually connected. So the, the, the overall sort of power of the police kind of sort of vacuums you in sometimes and, and other times it disperses you out just... But um, I was going to ask you, um, you go back a long way. And um, I don't want to go uh, back one of my favorite guitarists, oh, not that long, but, you know, uh, one of my favorite guitarists is Jimi Hendrix. And yeah. um, I read that uh, you jammed with Jimi Hendrix and lent him a guitar and, and uh, when he was first came to England and lent yeah. Eric Clapton his guitar as well, his Gibson. I mean, that's, that's pretty amazing. Um, yes. What was yeah, he like? actually living history as your are <laughs> Reached through it's the screen. Well, okay. Yeah, I was in that scene in London. Jimmy turned up, and I actually got a call from Chaz Chandler, who was the bass player of the Animals, 
and said, oh, hey, man, I'm bringing this guy over. He's fantastic. You'll never believe that. <laughs> you know, yeah, I'm like, well, okay, well. He said, he's got a guitar, you know, and he made this call and I was living in West Kensington, London. He was coming from Heathrow with Jimmy and I didn't have a guitar. I, or I wasn't there and I think they turned up and there was an old 12 string and they took that. But anyway, it was just a little bit bizarre. But about a week later, I went to see him play and he was playing at a place called Blazes in London. I think it was Blazes. And, you know, I walked in and there was this guy on stage, you know, with an afro, you know, three feet wide and <laughs> complete sort of white, long fringed buckskin suit. And I walked in, he had a, a white Stratocaster in his mouth and it was just like, oh my God, what is this? <laughs> anyway, it was Jimmy. He was playing with the Brian Auger trio. Far out. But I was playing with the stock machine. And so at that time, we were all sort of under the same management. So I was very immediately in that same circle. So, you know, I met him quite a few times. And fast forward, we all ended up in L.A. And I was living, I was in the animals, living in Laurel Canyon. And got the word that Jimmy was going to play it. I think it was called TGT Studios, which may have become A&M eventually on La Brea. And they said, you should come down and come down and see him, you know. And I went down with Zoot, actually, and we walked into this control room. i never forget this because Jimmy was just in there and he was playing, you know, it's like nine Marshall stacks. It was like, what? <laughs> and he was leaning back against the, the um, glass of the control room, the hat on with a feather, the whole bit, you know, full, full, full Hendrix. And he was wailing away and it's like, God, like a force from another planet. And um, he came in, he's a very shy, very shy, what was he like? You know, was he a monster? No, he's a very shy, kind of introverted guy, very soft-spoken. It's all in there. And yeah, in the playing, yeah. Yeah, so, you know, we're saying hi, hi, hello, hello, hello. I walked out into the studio and Mitch was there, Mitch Mitchell, he was still messing around. After. So I picked up, for some reason, and I don't quite understand this, there was a Les Paul, strung the right way around because Jimmy played the other way, left-handed. Mm. I picked up the guitar. I, I started playing along with Mitch. So we're having a jam. And then Jimmy walked out and picked up a bass and he just joined in. So we went on for about 10, 12 minutes. And I'm going, Jesus. Because <laughs> Jimmy at that point was like the god of the universe. I mean, there was, yeah. everyone was just like, you know. Jimmy no played bass. Jimmy, Jimmy played, played bass, bass for you. Yes, that's right. right. New bands, you know, Jimmy's on bass. Yeah, you're in a band and, you know, you're the guitarist and Jimmy's on bass, you know. Yeah. What does that say about you, Andy? Yeah, I know. It was a yeah. bit of a scary moment. No, he, it was fantastic. It was very sweet. And then, then he, after a while, he did about 10, 15 minutes. He said, hey, man, mind if I play guitar for a little while? <laughs> Take this thing, you know. And off we went. Then I, I, I probably picked up the bass and then Zoot came out and played an organ or piano. And, we, and we, we, we jammed for about 20 minutes, yeah. And that tape is around somewhere. People have found it. Because I think it was Eddie Kramer, who was his recording engineer, recorded it. Yeah. So that's online somewhere? Like a somewhere, yeah. Somebody, it, did, it did come out somewhere years later, you know, in the mists of time sort of thing. Wow, that's cool. So... But, uh, yeah, he was highly influential, but I didn't personally want to be a, um, a Hendrix clone because everybody was doing it, and that, that wasn't my my thing. I, mm. I liked other things. Yeah, you do a lot of sort of jazz and um, a lot of sort of delay. Was that because, you know, you guys were a three-piece and you had to sort of fill it out 
fill that space well, out. Well, okay, two, two, two replies to that. No, I, my influences were jazz. I grew up, you know, with Mesa Montgomery, Kenny Burrell. You know, I started, you know, like anyone does, like learning a few chords. Then I, but I got into jazz pretty quickly. By the time I was about 15 because I found it more interesting harmonically. I, you know, thought simple three chord pop wasn't really my thing. I, you know, mm. I was more interested in it as a musician to get into more complex harmony and that. So I developed... A different style. So I was into Kenny Burrell, Wes Montgomery, Jimmy Rainey, people like that. Great American jazz guitar players. And that's what I tried to do. So I had pretty good chops. I could play all of West Coast blues by the time I was about 15, 16, the whole solo. Yeah, you know, hours, thousands of hours listening to these things. This is how you learn to play on a long player. Yeah. Yeah, and, I saw you know, a video of you playing like crazy-ass blues and – like you were totally ripping the blues oh, yeah. and uh, it was so starkly different from uh, some of the other work you've done, uh, particularly with the police. And um, what, what's it like, like the way you frame uh, yourself in, in a group like that coming from someone that can do it all with um, yeah. blues and all of that. Was it a conscious decision to say, okay, I want to create a bit of space here and, and just do more sort of texture-esque type stuff or. Yeah. Well, you know, it sort of came about, organically you know we weren't getting any gigs because nobody liked us at the beginning it was hardcore punk in london it was like religious fervor if you weren't that you weren't going to get a gig i mean so many people went out their careers were finished because they weren't punk we were kind of fake punk but they we still weren't getting the gigs so we, we got a lot of rehearsal time so we used to rehearse in those very early days in these dank black basements <laughs> everywhere was painted black and had like horrible graffiti and that's where we the police sound was born so we rehearsed a lot and as we played instead of being just punk and you sting i think started with his ear very good ear started to pick up on the things that i could do and we sort of sort of crept towards one another and he slowly started to bring out these secret songs he had that he hadn't shown anybody and suddenly we were finding another sound and I got an echoplex and I started to get these reverbs and delays. You know, there wasn't much gear around at the time. We weren't in the golden age of guitar pedals. So I started to get some things and sort of somewhat consciously realizing that, okay, if we're going to do shows at an hour and a half or two hours, you know, I got to like, I got to spice up the guitar sound so it's not just one crunchy sound the whole time. The whole thing. Yeah. yeah. And I started to like open up and get into these space jams. And, you know, Sting had the complete talent and ability to like improvise vocally over these spacey chords and all that. And so we just sort of crept into this thing, you know, and then, you know, that's it sort of developed from there. The sort of the sound and the playing of the three of us, the way we played instrumentally together. Sting's voice over the top of it and his ability, you know, to structure a pop song. You know, it was but, a very... But you with those uh, those sounds that you were working with back then, uh, very innovative stuff back then. I mean, yeah. and you, you talk about, you know, clones of Hendrix. Were there clones of you, um, you know, when you were doing that type of thing? No, we, I the, think we, the guitar sound in particular completely uh, was absorbed into the lexicon of you know guitar rock you know it was it was a kind of a breakthrough because i was pushing for it to do something with it mm. and you know i think it was aided by the fact that the songs were really good and you know we were a cute bunch of lads at that point 200 years ago <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. so it all kind of worked out you know but um it, you know when we started we 
you know, it was it was real punk. And then it sort of slowly. Well, I tell you, one of the actual factors was the um, the reggae thing that came in because the only if you weren't punk, the only other thing you could be in London at that time was reggae because you know it's a big Jamaican qual uh, population in London. And so there was a lot of reggae around and Bob Marley, of course, was super popular and, and wonderful, great songwriter. And so Sting found that as a kind of a convenient thing, because as he's singing and improvising vocals, he didn't have to like, you know, be hammering on the bass like this. He could, you know, play these kind of loping bass lines and Stuart started to find this mid-tempo reggae thing. And we kind of, that helped us um, develop a style. But, we were not a white reggae band. We used elements of reggae to make our own music. That's a very important distinction. Yeah, the reggae is very different, um, but you can still hear it in there. But uh, yeah, it's in you there guys a little bit. Yeah, more yeah. from the rhythm, you know, uh, doing the reggae thing a little bit it helped us somewhat in being able to work in London, you know. Uh, so. Yeah. You know, Andy, uh, listening to you talk uh, to us, yeah, we, we could clearly see where the detail comes in your short stories. And you've told us four or five stories that are absolutely fascinating that we will never forget. I can't they imagine sound like your stories. I can't imagine what it's like, yeah. you know, as a viewer reading this book or a listener reading this book. Uh, Andy Summers, Fretted and Moaning, a book of short stories. Andy, how many stories are we looking at here? They're 45 stories. 45 stories. Yeah. And all are based on rock and roll stories, nothing quite true, but they're all around the <laughs> industry, correct? Yeah. Each story features a guitar somehow, or, you know, or, or not even features. There's a guitar in every story. And, and it's really the way that people, uh, people's lives revolve around it, their relationships for the good or the bad. But there's always a guitar in there because I, well, you know, I'm not a complete idiot. I thought when I, okay, if I do this, what's a good way to get it sort of accepted? If I write about, you know, uh, you know stories with guitars and people are probably gonna take attention because of my history. Uh, but that's just one element. You know, you still gotta contrive all these situations and you gotta use your imagination. You know? I love that story of how the couple went to Jamaica and that guy flogged yeah. his guitar. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> yeah. That was a, yeah. that was a good one. Or or, or when or when the guy uh, the guy calls the hooker and she has to be his wife. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, Andy Summers, fretted and moaning, short stories comes out on August nineteenth. Andy, we appreciate your time today. Thank you so Great much. Great talking to you guys. Thank you Thanks, so much. Matt.